I don't know. I don't know what caused it. Like, hate to say it, but sometimes people just break. Welcome to a comedy show. Welcome. <laughs> This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Jared Gardner, who has selected Chris Gethard's stand-up comedy performance, Career Suicide, currently available on HBO, and the transcript is easily available online. Our medium of podcasting does not allow us to reproduce the performance, but we will play a couple of audio clips from it. And we encourage you to view the performance if you can. Because the transcript is too long to be read in its entirety on this podcast, we'll proceed in this way. Jared will read the opening, then play an audio clip of Gethard performing the rest of that in the beginning. Jared will then summarize the middle and play another clip of Gethard performing the ending, and then we'll go into our discussion. Let me introduce our guest. Jared Gardner is the Joseph V. Denny Professor of English at Ohio State University and a core member of the Project Narrative faculty. Jared is a man of many talents who has also developed expertise across a range of fields. In addition to being a narrative theorist, Jared is a print and media historian, and he's made valuable contributions to our understanding of American literary history, film, graphic narrative, including graphic medicine, and popular culture. Jared is the author of Masterplots, Race and the Founding of an American Literature, 1787 to 1845, Johns Hopkins Press, 1998, Projections, Comics and the History of 21st Century Storytelling, Stanford, 2011, and the rise and fall of early magazine, uh, early American magazine culture, uh, Illinois University Press 2012. Jared also serves as director of the Popular Culture Studies Program at OSU. Uh, and one uh, programming note, Jared and I will be co-directing the 2023 Project Narrative Summer Institute devoted to narrative medicine and graphic medicine. We'll soon have more information uh, about the Summer Institute on the Project Narrative website. So Jared, uh, before we turn to Gethard's career suicide, I'd be interested to hear about why you chose it for today's discussion. Sure, and, and thanks so much for having me. I've been enjoying the podcast, uh, and it's I'm excited to finally get a chance to, to join you. This is a new area for me. I haven't done a lot of work on stand-up comedy, but I've uh, kind of committed myself uh, with my uh, colleague uh, here at Ohio State, uh, Linda Mishevsky, to working on an extended project on stand-up comedy and mental health and addiction. And I first became interested in it when I was actually teaching a course that both of us teach, uh, which is narrative and medicine here in the English department. And I was looking for a range of media in which illness narratives uh, related to both physical and, and mental illness were addressed. And uh, my eldest son, who was uh, very interested in comedy at the time, uh, said, you should listen. He gave me a list of like five or six stand-up comics. And I was like very surprised because 
the last time I paid serious attention to stand-up comedy, it was not a place where there would be a lot of discussion around mental illness. And this was the first one that I listened to. And I ended up sharing it with my class. Uh, and it resonated with me a whole lot. It resonated with many of them as well. And I was, I think, as as many of the students said in reflecting on it, the thing they found most moving and most, I guess, hopeful was the degree to which a story about somebody's long struggle with mental illness and addiction issues um, could be also a source of humor. It's humor throughout. Uh, there's probably more serious uh, kind of heartfelt autobiography than you're usually going to find. But uh, throughout, one is smiling, laughing, at times wondering if you should, and the comic gives us permission to laugh, uh, to enjoy his ability, his power, to laugh at his own stories that were obviously not at the time laughing matters. Oh, um, and so I've yeah. become curious about a new form for me and a place where I think some of the most interesting illness narratives are being told right now. Yeah, terrific, Jared. And I hope we'll get into some of uh, sort of what's behind those really very powerful effects that yeah. you and your students resonated with. Yeah, not all resonated of which I've, with. I figured out, but I'm hoping to. Yeah, right. Uh, and we won't have time to get into yeah, all of it. But, um, but I, anyway, I, with that in mind, are there any things that you'd like to highlight uh, that for yeah, our audience well, before we Well, I think it's, we it's obviously a visual medium, a visual uh, performance. This is a stand-up special on HBO. The way in which a stand-up special usually comes about is at the end of a long tour of a show. For those of you who have had a chance to perhaps look up the script, as, as Jim suggests, it's, it's easily available online, you'll see this is a very long script, much longer than your average stand-up comedy. I say 50 minutes to an hour is your average. This show is an hour and a half. Gethart had been performing it for a long time before it became time to roll the cameras. And it's it is, you can tell in watching it, very polished. His set is also very unique. He is uh, performing in a very intimate set to a smaller audience, and it is set up almost like a living room if a living room were in a subway station in New York. It's an oddly intimate and industrial space, and it is uh, kind of part of the larger mise-en-scene of the performance. He himself is wearing a somewhat ill-fitting, uh, a striped shirt, purple and white. He's got a little bit of a, a Tintin haircut, and he is uh, definitely working very hard uh, in his own self-presentation, which I think is very natural to him, to be casual, intimate, uh, to be inviting the audience on television and in the, in the actual performance space to uh, kind of settle down with a friend who is going to be sharing with them mm -hmm. uh, a story about their life uh, and invites a lot of trust, which is, I think, necessary for the vulnerable story he's going to share. Okay, terrific. Okay, so here's Jared Gardner reading the beginning of Career Suicide by Chris Gethard. So this, again, I'm going to apologize. I can't, I won't try to duplicate his unique intonations. Uh, you'll hear his voice in just a little bit. Uh, so retroactively project them back on my reading. So to begin, before I tell you anything else, I want you to know, I see a shrink. We're good. I've actually been seeing the same shrink since 2007. 
I didn't start dating the woman who's my wife now until 2012. My shrink's name is Barb, which I think we can all agree that's a perfect name for a shrink. And Barb's the best, even though Barb is kind of the worst, <laughs> and mostly because she's not necessarily, like, good at it. She's not actually good at being a doctor. When you're a doctor, there's all kinds of rules that go along with that. When I started with Barb, I was like, I don't think she knows that. But then very quickly, I'm like, oh, wait, no, she just doesn't give a shit, man. She once spent a portion of a session sitting on the couch with me, showing pictures on an iPad of a house she bought in Mexico. And that's also how she let me know she was moving to Mexico. All our sessions now happen via Skype, oftentimes while she's lounging in a hammock. She's seen my shows many times over the years. She's come out to live shows, and that's very nice. It's very supportive. I get that. But there are these things called boundary issues, and I, you don't want those to be crossed. She once saw me in a show here in New York, and my parents also attended that show, and they lived near each other in New Jersey at the time, and Barb asked my parents for a <laughs> ride home, and they gave it to her. Now, if you're not familiar with how this type of doctor-patient relationship is supposed to go, it's not supposed to end with your shrink and your parents alone in a car. But there's a reason I've stayed with her as long as I have. I mean, it's been a decade. She can, she can be great. There's a lot of crazy stuff, and you'll hear a lot of that. But she can also be great. One time she says to me, she goes, you know what your basic problem is? Your reactions to things are not in proportion to the things you're reacting to. And that's just, mwah, picture me doing a chef's kiss there. Because that's very true about me. That's always been true. Really big things will happen in my life and I'll be like, whatever, who cares? And then these tiny little things will just spiral out of control. Look at my wife. My wife, my wife's incredible. I think my wife's a perfect human being outside of of one flaw. She does, she does have one flaw. If she opens a cabinet door, the cabinet door stays open. That is a fact. I don't even know if she's aware that they move in the other direction. And unfortunately for me, with my anxiety mixed with slight OCD, if a cabinet door is open and it doesn't have to be, that feels to me like the entire world is falling apart. And there's one night where she and I are in bed and I can't fall asleep because I know that in our kitchen there is a cabinet door and it is open. And I'm in my head, I'm going, who cares? Let it go. There's no negative repercussions to a cabinet door being open right now. And then I think to myself, you can't make that promise. And I'm going, don't do this. It's crazy if you do it. But I do. I get out of bed. I tiptoe into our kitchen. I close the cabinet door. And when I do, I say out loud, it's over. And now I'm going to actually turn it over to uh, Gethard himself so we can hear him finish up the opening of his monologue. <laughs> now, clearly that does not deserve that reaction. Barb is on the money when it comes to this one. And maybe I should know that about myself. 
Maybe I should know that my reactions don't always make sense. I, I really didn't. And, and for her to tell me that in such a simple way, that's the type of wisdom Barb drops every once in a while that makes it so worth it to stay with her. Even though she also says things like the time she told me that she believes human brains are actually computers invented by aliens <laughs> and placed inside our heads. <laughs> my shrink told me that. She didn't just tell me that. She forgot she told me that and reiterated it eight months later. So I, I bet for a lot of people, the, the big question is why, right? Like, why do you have to see a shrink? That cabinet door thing isn't so bad. And it's not. It's also just the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately. I, I've been dealing with stuff more severe than that since a really young age. Um, I, I didn't know. I didn't know when I was 11 years old that this thing had a name, depression. I just thought everybody in fifth grade had an internal monologue like the guy from Taxi Driver. <laughs> it's very hard to verbally kind of describe what it what it feels like. I, I bet anybody else who has dealt with it would agree that's that's one of the very frustrating things about it. Um, I can say this: even when I was little, I knew I was never sure which version of myself I would wake up as on any given day. I, is today going to be a day where I'm, I'm really mad at everybody and I can't even explain why? Or today, am I going to get really shy around people who I have known for my whole life? Or, or maybe today, I'll be really manic and try to convince the other kids in the neighborhood that we got to get up on a garage and jump into our neighbor's pool. Or maybe today, I'll be too scared to even leave the house because I've convinced myself if I do, I might see the Virgin Mary and die like those kids who saw her in Portugal 100 years ago. Because I think we'd all agree that when you're born with mental illness level anxiety, the cure clearly is being raised Catholic. <laughs> Catholicism doesn't help anxiety. It's like this man's watching you apologize for something. That's like, that's the whole religion. That's it. I didn't, I didn't see this stuff hit its peak level until I was 14. That, that's the first age where I had one of my attacks. And, and these attacks have, have plagued me ever since. Basically, if, if my depression really gets going, I kind of can't like, grab onto my thoughts, is how I might uh, describe it. And I, I can't breathe, and my, my body is hot, and my face numb, like actual pins and needles when it's at its worst. My face goes numb. It's awful. So I, I bet the even bigger why is, well, why does that happen? And I'm sorry to tell you, no real reason. I wish. I wish I had one. I wish I had some inciting incident that I could point to and say, that, that's what caused this in me. I don't have that. I was a pretty normal kid at the end of the day. I loved basketball. John Starks, that's my dude, now and forever. Loved Starks. I love pro wrestling. The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, that's my guy. <laughs> a couple other people, that's nice, that's good. <laughs> I, uh, I loved comic books, but we can be honest, right? Marvel only. Come on. <laughs> Thank you. DC Comics are bullshit, always have been. They have a character called the Blue Beetle. Get the fuck out of here. That's not okay. You know? And comedy was the big one for me. Even when I'm nine, 10 years old, all I want to do is stay up late and watch David Letterman. And I start collecting Andy Kaufman tapes when I'm still in high school. And Saturday Night Live, when I was a kid, that's the best era of SNL. Chris Farley living in a van down by the river. It's the best, you know? So pretty average nerdy kid interests, you know? And, uh, and no real traumas to report at home. My, my parents are still in love and married after 40 years. Like, I don't know. I don't know what caused it. Like, hate to say it, but sometimes people just break. 
welcome to a comedy show. Welcome. <laughs> so I thought we'd pause there. And as Jim asked me, just maybe talk a little bit about the rest of the show before we come to the end. We wanted to kind of give a sense of the larger arc. It's, it is, as I said, it's a, it's a long show. We're starting to see in recent stand-up more uh, long narrative arcs. Uh, but this one still stands out as really one of the longest ones that I have I've seen. And it is, I think, also one of the more writerly ones that I have seen. There are some moments of improvisation, but relatively few. And he's been doing the show so long by this point that even the interactions with the audience, you can tell that he's had enough experience knowing what to expect, that he is able to even have his responses there pretty well rehearsed. So it's a very tight show, even as it feels, and this is the great skill of a performer who is uh, versed in, in telling oral narrative, is to feel as if it is spontaneous, natural. And the story that follows is begins in its broadest strokes. It is chronological. It kind of tells the story of his kind of earliest uh, suicidal ideation, uh, a, uh, a half-hearted suicide attempt, his confession to his mother, one of the hardest things he had to do, but clearly probably the most important thing he ever did, and uh, starting to see a doctor, a, a terrible doctor, not terrible in the way Barb was, but much worse, and starting medication, his experiences with medication, getting off medication, a common uh, part of this story for people who struggle with mental illness, and thinking everything was going to be okay, and then it's not. As he enters into his adult life as a comic, getting uh, uh, opportunities uh, to do some work with uh, with Comedy Central and even to have a, a two-week gig with Saturday Night Live in the writer's room, beginning to realize that even as things look like they're moving in the right direction for his career, the underlying issues are not getting fixed, that there is no external validation, no external success that is going to address it. And uh, inevitably, without medication, the issues return with a vengeance and things come to that final crisis. Uh, and again, here you can kind of feel the broad outlines of what might be familiar to some of you as a, the kind of 12-step narrative, a narrative that shares a lot in common with the, the narrative of mental illness, not least because so many uh, folks who have struggled long-term with mental illness, particularly of, of older generations, I think young people have much more access to and less stigma surrounding uh, seeking out help and medication, uh, although those stigmas, of course, still remain. But many people, and Chris Gethart certainly did, self-medicated for years with drugs and alcohol. So getting sober is often a part, realizing the self-medication is not working and that uh, professional medication and care is what is needed. And he comes quite literally to the cliff's edge, metaphorically and literally. Uh, and uh, at that moment, there is the, the turning point where finally he is fully prepared and able to accept the, the help he needs and to uh, begin turning around his life so that he is, as he is here, finally able to tell his story and to know what he has just experienced. So, Jim, do you want to kind of 
turn here to the yes, the end let of the him go to the end, and then we'll move into our discussion. Yeah, thanks, right. Jared. So we're gonna kind of just we thought we would end with Chris Gethart now has just kind of told the story that I've just summarized for you. And keep in mind that the story I summarized sounds very chronological, but it is filled with loopbacks with seeming digressions that might bring us back even to childhood or to earlier moments. But he's very good at telegraphing where we are in his journey, even as he does. And part of, I think, those loopbacks, part of what they do is they uh, are his opportunity to reflect back on things that he can now see that he couldn't see at the time. So here he is uh, summing up kind of how he got to this point and why, why he's sharing it now. I started talking about this stuff in, in my comedy um, a little bit, never as in-depth as I'm doing with this show. And I've, I've, written, I've written about this side of myself a couple times online, and, and this has led to a situation I never saw coming, where I am not exaggerating when I say that at this point, I've now received thousands of emails, Facebook messages, any way people get in touch, they do, and they're people who need help. And a lot of times, I swear to you, they don't even know I'm a comedian, they don't know anything about me. They'll just Google who's willing to talk about this stuff. And then this thing I wrote comes up and, and, and so often they are really young and they need help. And you'll be happy to hear any time somebody asks me for help, I say the same thing straight away. I go, look, first things first, I'm not a professional. And it's not like I can tell you something my shrink told me because She's not really a professional either. <laughs> but when I, when I answer these messages, especially when they're from young kids, I, I almost always find myself telling them some version of that Thursday story. And, and I say, for me, it was that. It was, it was a length of time that I needed to last. For you, maybe it's a place where you feel safe or a person you feel okay opening up to, I don't know. It, it, it probably will not be that easy. You don't get to pick what breaks you. You really cannot predict what's going to save you, but please keep your eyes peeled for it, please. Because I bet that it's out there and I bet you can find yours. Because I found mine and I never dreamed I'd be strong enough to say that. I mean, there were 15 years of my life. You guys have heard about them tonight. 15 years were the entire time for 15 years. I was just completely convinced that I was never gonna feel better. And now, when I call my mom, she doesn't have to be scared. And I'm not wasting all this time pretending comedy is gonna fix me somehow. It's not, this isn't the type of thing that gets fixed. You just, you live with it. And I don't hide it anymore. I never have to hide it from anyone ever again because my wife has seen this stuff at its worst and she still loves me. And I still love that leggy, 
redheaded punk rocker, <laughs> even if she doesn't know how to close a goddamn cabinet door. <laughs> I get another type of email too, though. I, I get another type of email all the time. It, it's from people who aren't the ones actually suffering from this stuff, but they see it. They're around it. It's, it's in their lives. They say, they say, my cousin, my coworker, my friend, I'm, I'm watching them. I'm watching them deal with this really horrible thing and, and I wanna help, but then they always add this caveat and it drives me nuts. They say, I, I really wanna help, but I don't wanna mess anything up. I, w I wouldn't wanna make it worse. And that gets under my skin. And those people, I almost always find myself telling them about the clinic doctor from back in the day, that clinic doctor. I say, you sound too much like that guy right now. He never wanted to be responsible for messing anything up. He refused to be liable should anything get worse. And that's why he needed everything to be so correct. I say, don't be like that. Be like Barb. <laughs> she doesn't give a fuck what's correct. <laughs> but she really always tries to do what's right. And when it came down to it, she chose to pick up the phone. And that's why I have so much love for her. And it's why I always will. Even though <laughs> she once told me that in the 1970s, she starred in a pornographic film. <laughs>
I've actually got a story. Here, yeah. he tells you right from the start, I'm going to tell you the story of, of what happened. Right. That is a very different approach. It's, uh, it's an approach that is, again, much more familiar from our maybe conversations with intimate friends who are kind of telling us things about them that we never knew before. Mm -hmm. And right. so he brings us into a place of intimacy in a space that is not always a place, historically definitely not a place where one expects intimacy. We, there's the a same long time, tradition right? of insult comedy, yeah. of of, yeah. of heckling, of, right. of the opposite of what we get here. Right. But at the same time, there in that space, right, there is that uh, conventional expectation of there'll be a lot of jokes. There'll yep. be, there'll be, com this is comic, right? This is, this is not Tobias Wolf doing uh, Boy's Life or, or, or something like that. So, so I think that juxtaposition, and I like what you say about sort of the flipping of the uh, proportions, right? But that, that juxtaposition, maybe we could talk a little bit more about that juxtaposition of, okay, long form narrative memoir and the, you know, the expectation uh, that he delivers on that still we're going to be laughing a lot uh, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, know. I also I mean, even reading it aloud, not being a comedian, trying to capture some of his pauses, but not being in a setting. Right. You and I are sitting here with microphones and reading the text out loud. I realize in a different setting and a different rhetorical space. People might not laugh at this, right? He yeah. has the barb joke there from yeah. the beginning, and he ends with the barb joke, which is certainly a, an invitation. But these people have come to laugh. And so there is also one of the great joys of comedy is that comedy is as something that we maybe don't think about enough. But one of the pleasures of comedy is the pleasure of the involuntary physical response, right? It can be to kind of vaudeville. We might be to seeing somebody slip on a banana peel right, right. Uh, back in the old days, the kind of origins of stand-up comedy as we know it. Or it can be to a joke. In fact, often it is going to be to a, a surprise that happens verbally, maybe when we're least expecting it. But when we come to a comedy show, we are coming precisely to be kind of made to go through that physical release of uh, being inspired to engage with our whole bodies in different ways, and we all laugh differently, uh, to something that's being shared. Observational comedy yeah. can get us to see the humor in something we might not have ever seen before. And increasingly, we're seeing in these kind of indie alternative uh, comics, the ability to see humor in things that on the surface seem decidedly unfunny. And one of the things Gethard says at the beginning is that comedy was a huge part of his life and identity, kind of basketball, right. comics, and comedy. Interesting pro wrestling, too, which is a, a performance of violence that is also, audience is aware, is also a, a performance. As he also talks about in a part we didn't listen to about growing up in a violent neighborhood. And so performative violence that is theatrical and not real also has, I think, a kind of pleasure. But comedy is the big one. And comedy and mental illness are, they're linked together. In fact, the history of comedy shows that uh, it goes back a long way. Comics generally did not talk about it, but they struggled with it. Uh, going back to early 20th century comedians like Fanny Bryce, for example, who struggled with mental illness and addiction. 
but never had resources or the imagination that she could speak about either while performing her comedy. This is, I think, uh, part of a long destigmatization of mental health and, and mental mm-hmm. illness and yeah. addiction issues. Yeah. But it's also a part of a longer attempt of people like Chris Gethard to come to understand that that connection. Chris Gethard had, at this time, was just wrapping up a longstanding, uh, very popular public access talk show where he would he would interview people about a range of issues, but often about mental health and comedy and the connections between mm-hmm. the two. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's figured it out. I don't yeah. think that's his attempt. But part of what he's interested in here is, okay, I am now in a place where I can start to put the pieces of my fragmented life together. And the famous saying within comedy is tragedy plus time equals comedy. I can now reflect back and and see the humor and use humor as a way to heal, but also a way to share. Uh, But I also will say as somebody, uh, and I interestingly had not yet been diagnosed when I first saw this show, but I am uh, on the bipolar spectrum as is uh, Gethard. And I can say as somebody who now is, as Gethard was then, properly medicated and has the right therapist, the right doctors, and has the distance on my own experience that I didn't have, I can now start to put my own pieces of my very fragmented last, in my case, sadly, 40 years into orders, not into necessarily chronological order, but into orders of significance. One of the problems, as Gethard says, with not knowing what you're going to wake up as, am I going to be the manic, the angry, the scared, the anxious self? is that each self is almost like a, a a whole new start of a whole new narrative arc. And it can last a day. It can mm-hmm. last six months. People's cycles are different. But it means having a, a continuous sense of self and of the life you're living is very hard. Mm-hmm. And so this is also really is a it's a victory lap. And I, I don't want to yeah. take away that part of it. This is as he and I think you hear that in the end. He's very emotional about it. The emotion is clearly genuine, despite having told this story probably a 100 to- times by now. Yeah. It is a victory lap of saying, still, there's probably long gaps in his life. He tells a story of a long, drunken, alcohol-fueled bender, which is filled with gaps, right? Blackouts that he'll never be able to fill in. But he can put the pieces together. It's a puzzle that will always have missing pieces, but it's a puzzle that he can now see the beauty of the larger story. And comedy is also a way of getting us to listen to stories that might otherwise be hard to hear. And so I think for all those reasons, it works really well. Yeah. So there are two things that you said that I'd like to maybe uh, elaborate on a little bit. The first one is the way in which he does the kind of juxtaposition of the serious and the comic, right, in a very strong way. And he does that every time he talks about Barb, as you say, the beginning and the end. He also does that with this, sometimes people break. Right. Welcome to a comedy show, right? I mean, that juxtaposition, right? He's It's this big jump, right, from... I'm I'm just really serious here and and this is part of the story I'm going to tell you the memoir part and and so on I'm not I'm not going to give an an origin story for it a particular incident sometimes I broke sometimes people break 
but we're doing this comedy. Welcome to right. a comedy show, right? And it gets a huge laugh, right? Yeah. It's sort and, of and, and, uh, and, uh, and really sets up the the tone, which is it's also a promissory note, I think, yeah. right? I'm going to go into some pretty dark stuff. Yeah. First of all, he says at the beginning, I'm seeing a therapist. We're doing great. Like he's, there's that promise at the start right. Right. that I'm, I am not in crisis right, right. now. Uh, no promise that I won't be in crisis again, but I'm not right now. But he also is saying, I'm going to go into some dark stuff and we're still going to have fun, right? We're right. still going right. to laugh because right. Right. that is part of how I heal. That's part of how I share right. my story now as he talks about at the end with others who might be at the beginning of their journey. I think he thinks rightly, I think, that it is a... It is a tool for healing and a and a tool for letting down our guard and letting other people in. And right. every time things get dark in his story, just when you think, okay, this is really getting hard. We've gone off the – got to jump, just, right? He yeah, will flip right, to – and it's right. it's always related. It's right, not right. – there's a couple of times where he, he has a, a very passionate relationship to Morrissey, uh, the right. lead singer of The Smiths. That is – even by 2017, has the potential to be somewhat embarrassing as Morrissey has become, let's just say, himself a little bit problematic, to use that, <laughs> that, that term. Uh, and he'll sometimes turn that into a joke, but never to give up his how much Morrissey's songs meant to him right. through a long right. period of his life. He'll sometimes tell jokes that do come from left field in terms of his story, but most of the jokes are intimately related to the pain. Yeah. And yeah. I find that beautiful, right. actually. Right, right. And just to, you know, pick, uh, pick up on something you said, it's also striking to me that it's, it's the, the movement typically is from the serious back to the joke, right? Yeah. So, so at the end, right, we get this really powerful stuff, right? And then be like Barb, don't be like this other right. psychiatrist. But Barb, what? Barb, she was in a pornographic <laughs> film, right? And that's yeah. how we're going to end, right? Yeah. And, we're going to end with the joke. And right? he never questions, like, how invaluable she's been. Right. But she's, right. she's far from perfect, right? right. And that's that's I part love of the, the message there, too. That's too. not just yeah. the, not just a joke, yeah. And I think that's, he talks about that at the end. I think it's so important, right, that we... One of the things that prevents us from reaching out to folks who are struggling is the fear of not being the professional, not knowing the right things to say. He saw a professional first, right? The professional yeah, who made right. him sign all the right documents, professional who had all the right degrees, who did everything by the book. That guy failed him miserably, right? right. This that is guy didn't see him. He had a checklist, yeah. right? I mean, that was and one that, of the things. Yeah. And he, this was, it's a part of the story that he tells in in fairly painful detail when he, he just basically got cut off for yeah. violating some unspoken but apparently signed uh, contract they had made when he was actually in crisis. Barb is in some ways the opposite. Barb is funny also and has clearly given him permission to use uh, him in this way. Barb is not her real name, but otherwise these are these are real stories. And Barb finds it herself very funny, which is a sign that she is not playing by the book. And part of his part of his story is about ambivalence, right? This is not a story of of heroes and villains. This right. is not a right. story of of learning to be perfect. Uh, he, is, he makes a joke at one point. He drives to California. He's listening to Morrissey, and he's feeling better, right? This is He realizes how far he's come since his last story he told about being in a car involved a suicide attempt. 
and then he goes, and then I get to California, I conquer comedy, and everything was was fine. Right, and, right. and he's like, obviously, that's not what happened, right? But there is a kind of triumphalist hero narrative that might lead us to expect that. And he refuses to give exactly. us that, right? Yeah, he's very never so. conquers yeah. comedy. It's right. He is right. a minor celebrity within the world of comedy, very important to people like my son and people who followed his show, but not not somebody who is going to be filling arenas. And I think that also gives him a certain permission, as he jokingly calls in the title here, to commit a kind of career suicide by by bending the rules and mm -hmm. privileging his own story over the humor. But yeah. I also think it's, it's important, I think, that it's not a triumphalist story. Right. It's a story of... of of healing, of being saved, but not of being fixed. Right. And yeah. That and I think that's, that goes back. There's a second thing I wanted to pull out from what you've already been saying, uh, which is about the temporality and about the way in which he does this movement from sort of time of the telling to time of the action, right? And he's able to move in and out. But the time of the telling is itself, even though it's, on the other side, in a way, it's not in this position of fi being fixed, right? Absolutely. And, and I don't know if you have, I mean, I, I mean, that's, I'm sort of pulling together things you've already said and it's kind of restating it, but you may have other things yeah, to say about actually, that. As he gets closer in the narrative, and I think that's part of where the emotion comes from towards the end, you can feel as the, as the, the, the distance, the temporal uh -huh. distance yeah. between the telling and the, and the experience yeah. starts to get closer and closer. The narrative actually gets a little harder to follow chronologically. Right. Uh -huh. It gets a little raw. It's it's you can feel that there's less processing. Mm -hmm. It's there's there's fewer jokes. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think there is that sense that kind of whether consciously or unconsciously, that there hasn't been as much processing time. In fact, when he tells us that the the punk rock girl with the long legs is now his wife. Right. That is a surprise because it's all been a jumble there towards the end, right? Yeah, it's, right. it's it is the happy ending on right. on one. But end. that's a very artful part of the structure, it right? Is. He's referred to her this one, you know, when he's in this manic phase and he's and doing all like, these things, and he can do this, his, right? yeah, right. She's like, and oh, it turns out that she's the one. She's the one who can't close the cabinet door right. and all that, right? So yeah, and it's and but I think it's, it's a little chaotic, it's artful, but it's also but artful. I think it's, yeah. I think, I mean, he is he is an excellent writer, right? An yeah. excellent storyteller. But I also think there is, there is a, 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 you know, as I think even you hear, like I, my father was a recovering alcoholic. I spent a lot of time in A meetings. He passed away last year and uh, which was, would have been comfortable with me sharing that always. He was very proud of it uh, and of his decades of sobriety. Yeah, sure. I spent a lot of time listening to those narratives and even listening to a 12-step recovery narrative. A common feature is often as things got closer to the moment of bottom. And, and in those narratives, there's a, a often a convention. Bottom can be lots of different things, but there is often a bottom in the story that leads to, in the, in the language of Alcoholics Anonymous, a a surrender, a, a giving up of the fantasy that you can control alcohol or mm -hmm. or heroin or whatever your uh, addiction is, and a kind of turning it over and accepting powerlessness or reaching out for help. As it gets closer, 
it's often becomes raw. You often feel you can often there's often tears. It's often a harder time figuring out how to put that into words. And this is primarily a story about mental illness, but it it bears similarities in that like addiction, there are often periods of our life that are just lost mm -hmm. to blackouts, to um, lost in translation. He says, and I think this is, is, is absolutely true. It's something we talk about in narrative medicine a lot is the challenges of sharing pain mm -hmm. from a patient to a caregiver, from a patient to family. Emily Dickinson spent her career trying to find ways to translate the experience of pain into words that could communicate to another. And part of her poetics is about kind of coming up against that, that barrier mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. where, uh, where communication breaks down. And I think uh, similarly with mental illness, there is an ongoing challenge with, as he says, putting it into words. And part of it is simply because the self of somebody who is, in this case, bipolar, is itself so fragmented from itself that it doesn't even have ways of describing it to himself, let alone to others. And the joy of being able to not necessarily put into words the internal experience. You notice whenever he's ex ex describing what it's like at his worst, he often turns to physical symptoms, right? My face is yeah, numb, tingling, yeah, right, yeah, because that's yeah easier to convey to others. To so it's not necessarily being able to describe what happens internally, but to being able to describe what actions, what thoughts, what behaviors, what kind of self-loathings this illness brought him to, and then to put that into a story right. that allows him to arrive at a place where he can break those patterns finally after 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. might be the best one can get, but it's it's so inspiring. Yeah. I know so many people who have found this story, particularly people who haven't yet arrived at their proper mm -hmm. diagnosis or their proper medication. The, the idea that this can happen to you right. is, I think, his right. biggest promise. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe just as we start to move toward the end here, just talk a little bit about how he tries to establish his relationship with the audience. That that seems to me very central to the effectiveness of this whole thing. He's got a variety of strategies. You talked in the beginning about when you described the way he dresses and the casual sort of informal kind of welcome into my living room kind of thing. Right. Uh, but what else do you see him doing in he's drawing a lot of stuff that is in the comics toolkit, right? He's been doing stand-up and sketch and improv comedy, each of which are very different forms. He's been doing this for, for a long time now. And he is drawing on things such as, there's no heckling in this show, to put it mildly. Yeah, but right. all stand-up comics learn in the trenches how to handle uh, hostility how to handle folks who are not only saying you're not funny, but maybe saying Patton Oswalt talks about some of his early experiences being physically insulted, even threatened. So one knows you're walking into a place of vulnerability. And as a comic, one of the things you learn is, especially early on, how to handle heckling, but also how to build rapport and, and trust, right? This is, mm -hmm. you're asking your audience to be vulnerable. Laughing is... A vulnerability, but you're also making yourself 
vulnerable. You're right. up there right. alone for right. an hour, uh, 90 minutes in this case. And you can just tell, partly just from his experience as a, also as a talk show host, how good he is at making people comfortable. And usually it's him making other people comfortable mm -hmm. on this talk show, asking them to be vulnerable. This is, in some sense, I think him having learned from what works, what helps other people be comfortable, what do they need from me, and helping to get that from his audience. He, he I think, establishes that uh, vulnerability and that he's going to need a certain degree of care and compassion, but he's going to also fulfill at least some of his contract yeah. for the ticket they paid. I also think he walks around and he has folks are very close to him. Yeah. And he moves around the audience and often is looking at individuals yeah. face on. He's incorporating them as examples. Yeah. A lot of eye contact. Yeah. He uses his hands a lot as folks from New York and New Jersey tend <laughs> to do. As And I know myself. And he is, as again, something most comics do, always very it's very important to him to not be setting himself up despite holding forth for 90 minutes from a position of of power of authority or of grandiosity right yeah, this is yeah, yeah. he is self-deprecating right. he makes fun of some of his physical features he talks about once he had to play the part of uh, or he auditioned for the part of man who is unattractive to women. Right. And he, he makes a joke about kind of a, a deliberately ironic joke. Well, I didn't get that part because and he kind of points right. to himself. Right. And he is not conventionally attractive, in, in although he is very appealing. And I think it's hard not to find him attractive in many ways by the end of this show. But he is certainly not, not what you call Hollywood glamour material. Right. Right. And I think yeah. that humility, that vulnerability, that sense of his owning and even celebrating his own imperfections in a world of, right. of celebrity and polish and glitz and glamour that is right. showbiz really While covertly helps. being so much in control and, and yeah. having this, as you were saying, this really brilliantly structured yeah. kind of script and, and, and he and knows think, how to deliver you know, it and all that. And yeah. I think knowing it's a I don't think the audience there necessarily even knew this was being taped for HBO, right? They might have, they might not have. Different decisions are made in different yeah, cases. Right. And it might have even been recorded over a couple of nights and kind of spliced together. Mm. But nobody, everybody knows he's been on tour with this show, right? That yeah. is, I'm, I'm touring this show. It has a name. People have a sense of what to expect in the age of the internet. They're few surprises. The script wouldn't be out there, but there might even be some video clips, right? So sure. this is a, it's a very different world of comedy uh, than it used to be, partly because of the importance of the stand-up special. It's one of the few big sources of revenue for a lot of comedians. It's also a very important career stepping stone. Having a, a, a special is, a, is, aside from appearing on Saturday Night Live or a late night talk show, one of the big right. kind of yeah. things for a your resume. Yeah. So it's, sure. it's everybody understands the preparation that's gone into this. And he's always been uh, a storyteller. So some of it's not a surprise. But he, I think, invites people into a living room. He says, about to tell you some really hard stories that about my life. It's going to end up okay. Mm -hmm. I've got this therapist. The therapist is messed up. And yet still it's okay. And then he kind of slowly works 
himself into a place where, and I can tell he's watching his audience's eyes, mm -hmm. like any good comedian. And when he sees them looking uncomfortable, he walks up close to them and kind of holds out his arms in a comforting gesture, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Kind of letting them know he sees he's okay. They're going to be okay. He knows there are people in that room who are struggling with mental illness, right? Yeah, right? It's not just comedians who are drawn to comedy because of mental illness. A lot of people are in the audience are also sure. drawn to it. Or may, as he said, almost everybody knows somebody struggling with these issues. Right. So he is, I think the intimacy, the smallness of the space is also so that he can be as he would be in his talk show, also attentive and a caretaker to his audience. And I think they feel it and they respond to it. So yeah. it's it, yeah. it's very unusual, but it's I think to me it's part of what conveys the power. If he was doing this on a big stage in a big arena, yes, it'd be it very would have different. such a different right. feel. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there any final things you'd like to say or leave our listeners yeah, with? I mean, the, the main thing I'd, like, I'd kind of like to say is – I'm a little like Barb, right? I am somebody who is always interested in trying new things and often inappropriately <laughs> kind of, as I am here, bringing things to the table that I don't fully understand. It's kind of my role to, uh, as a professional, but, to not be the professional. And so, I really do you believe could, that our brains were uh, actually implanted by aliens? I, mean, I, I won't say that, <laughs> okay. but it, it wouldn't surprise. Me. <laughs> but I do encourage folks who maybe have thoughts, insights, stories about how comedy has been important to them. If you want to share them with me, I'm easily found on the Project Narrative website, and I'd love to learn from you all as well. Thank you very much, Darren. Uh, this is this is really insightful, I think. And I want to thank our listeners. Also, encourage our listeners to check out Career Suicide on HBO or just search for the transcript online. I also want to say to our listeners, uh, we appreciate your feedback. You can send it to us by email at projectnarrative at osu.edu or on the Project Narrative Facebook page, or on our Twitter account. We're still on Twitter, and we'll see what happens, but for now. <laughs> I'll get you over to Mastodon. <laughs> yeah, at PN Ohio State. And I also say you can find 13 additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts. And let me invite you sort of in advance for our January uh, podcast when our colleague Simone Drake will be in the guest chair. I will be I will be listening. Okay. Thanks again, Jared. Thanks, Jim. <laughs>